Welcome to Restoration Church. We are in a series of uh, Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, and we're looking at it the same way Matthew is looking for his outsider's perspective on Jesus as he walked this earth. And so we kind of did a setup, went through chapter one, and then we did uh, the Beatitudes and this beautiful teaching on the Beatitudes. And then today we're going to go into chapter six, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount after the Beatitudes. There's this setup that Jesus says a lot here in the Sermon on the Mount that you have heard it said, and then he says, but I say unto you, and this is no different. We are being reminded constantly by Jesus that he has come to fulfill the law. And what that really means is that he comes to showcase the law, to show us how to live, not from the rules themselves, but from the heart from the intent of the law, because these laws protect people from themselves, from each other. And so Jesus comes to fulfill the law. Now, today, we think of law as sometimes a good thing, sometimes a bad thing, depending on what side of it you're on. But what are some of the ways that we can live from the heart of the law, from from the place where it does good? from the sense that there is there is protection within the law. So many scholars see this Lord's Prayer as a summary of the Amida, which actually means standing because of the posture which it was prayed in. And for centuries, or at least decades, I guess, now that I think about it, decades prior to the birth of Jesus, the Jewish people had prayed this prayer, um, an expanded version of it, at least daily, if not three times a day, depending on how they practice their faith. And another interesting thing about the Amida is that these prayers could not be offered unless 10 adult male Jews were present. There was this sense of communal prayer. This was a community prayer on behalf of those who weren't there, but there had to be 10 male Jews in order to even offer this prayer. So right before we get into the prayer, in verse 2, it says this, So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be be praised by others. Now there's going to be a lot of theater language, or several instances of it at least, and and there was this cultural understanding of the theater language. Uh, So for instance, with this verse 2, actors, they wore makeup and they wore masks, so it was difficult to tell, like if there was a, a, a poster or an announcement that there was a famous actor coming in on stage because of the mask and the makeup you may not know which one's which and so they would sound this this little trumpet sound right before the famous actor came on stage just to notify you that they were here so when Jesus says whenever you give alms do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites now we've talked about this before but hypocrites really means actor And so there's that cultural context clue with the theater language. So we're going to keep going with that in verse 
5. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites or actors, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So again, more theater language. Do not be like the actors. They love to stand and pray and and make spectacle and make sure that everyone sees them doing it. Now, here's the interesting thing. Now, you might think that you go into your room and shut the door and you might imagine a closet, like a really, you know, small, dark room. And, And we have had prayer closet rooms for centuries, and I think often based on this. But what this really would have meant is that in that time, They probably did not have space in their humble abodes for an extra room for prayer. But what they did have is they wore these prayer shawls or tallets and they covered their head whenever they prayed. So what would happen is you would basically, and you can't see me, but I'm lifting my hands up and drawing that prayer shawl over my head. So even if I'm in a crowd of people, I had now have this privacy. I have now, I'm able to pray privately in secret with God so that you're not maybe hearing my words or even seeing my facial expressions, but there is this posture of prayer. So obviously you are seen doing it. It's, there's nothing wrong with being seen praying, but your prayers, your posture of prayer, it's not seen. So we are to live out loud with our testimony. And, and it's, again, nothing wrong with people knowing that you are a person of faith. But in ways that point to the transformative power of the Holy Spirit, they don't point to us and our piety, our actions, our actor-like actions. So we're going to move on. So verse seven, when you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. So do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him again. We're just being reminded that this is not for show. It's not like one person's more eloquent use of the language makes their prayers more effective. You can just literally cover your head with your prayer shawl, anywhere you're at, and you and God are in communion. You talk, you're in communication. So with this understanding, when we know that the Amidah had been already practiced, a much expanded version of what the Lord's Prayer is going to be, it kind of changes the way we look at the Lord's Prayer. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to make it even simpler for you. So it's not about show. It's not about a lot of words. And the Amidah had more words. There is no doubt. But Jesus in, in verse 9 says this. So pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, may your name be revered as holy. May your kingdom come. You see, he's talking about our Father who is in heaven. But his kingdom is here as well. And he's referring again to your kingdom come here. The now God is here. There is truth and beauty and goodness and God's reflections all over us, all around us, within us, right here, right now. But there is also a kingdom to come. And that will be the completion of all things, the fulfillment of all things. So we go on. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, bringing all people into relationship 
with God so that they may revere him and do his will. That we are here still as the people of God and as an expression of God here on earth. And verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Now the Hebrew word for bread is lechem and it can also be used just as food. It's not necessarily a loaf of bread like we might imagine, but it also has kind of a broader meaning of just God being the provider of our sustenance, all sustenance, whatever it is to keep us going, whatever it is to nourish us. We might even take license with that and to nourish our soul and our spirit and our body, that God is the provider of all those things. Now, because of this uh, prayer, it's pretty interesting that even today, many Jewish, they don't throw out their old bread because that shows ingratitude to God for his provision. So they hang these, they put the bread crumbs or the scraps or the stale parts and they put it in a plastic bag and they hang it from their trash carts so that the poor can collect it. They leave gleanings because it was God's provision and they would not want to waste that. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And I kind of, you know, there's different words, transgressions. Forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us. I kind of like that too, because it has less of a, you know, it's not necessarily this um, strong sense of sin. It might just be someone's tramping, you know, trampling on you. They're transgressing. There's something to that. But this particular NRSV says, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Now, this was actually not in the original Amidah. It was forgive us our debts because God was the forgiver of all things. But the Jewish people at that time had not received Jesus as Savior um, and as the need to have their sins or they had understood that their sins need forgiven. But what they didn't know is that they had within that the obligation to forgive others. This was very new language, a new directive. And Jesus knew that. So when he finishes that with, as we also have forgiven our debtors, he knows that he's stepping on some religious people's toes because that is supposed to only be done inside of the temple. Only God, only God through his, his priestly uh, group of people. So here's the interesting thing. Forgiveness or unforgiveness is often under the surface, isn't it? The transformation is often unseen to someone on the outside. Whether you forgive somebody and you start having a liberation, a freedom from that anger that you've been harboring or that bitterness, or whether you choose to not forgive them and it's eating inside of you even as you plaster on a smile and play nice. Either way, it's under the surface. And Jesus knew that. He knew that it was going to be bad for us. Again, we're talking about the heart of the law. The intent is for us to live in freedom from anything that would bind us. And unforgiveness binds us. And then he goes on in verse 13, and do not bring us to the time of trial. Now, this can be a physical, a spiritual, or emotional trial, but there's protection within this prayer for us in all those ways, protect us from ourselves, maybe from our selfish inclinations that bring destruction to ourselves and others around us. And then he goes on, but rescue us from the evil one or protect us from Satan. And then he expounds a bit more on this forgiveness 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So I just want us to take for just a little side trail here for a moment to talk about forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is, does not mean that we minimize a grievous harm or even an era of harm. It doesn't mean that it does that what we felt or what we experienced doesn't matter. It's not erasing the need for consequences or even restitution sometimes. And it certainly is not a requirement to stay in harm's way, whether that's emotional harm, physical harm, spiritual harm. Forgiveness does have boundaries. But here's what forgiveness does. It refuses to make the other person pay for what they did. You see, this debt has to be absorbed somewhere. So there is a cost often that we bear this cost of forgiveness, that we absorb that loss and debt. We bring it to the cross. We say, here, we've received so much mercy. We were undeserving of that. And now I'm going to give mercy. I'm going to give forgiveness, not because it was earned, not always because it was even asked for, but because the heart of this is that I am free from this, that I have absorbed this. There's no longer someone that owes me anything on this particular issue. So all forgiveness is costly including what Jesus came and did for us. It's costly. It involves sacrifice and often, more often than not, a level of suffering. It hurts to forgive. Sometimes it hurts because you're letting go of familiar ways of thinking. Sometimes it just hurts because it's not fair. There's an injustice as in it. And yet it's this process that involves purging these unloving things that we're allowing to like mess around with our head so that we can be free to love well as Jesus loves well. Or even free to not worry about this thing that's been hanging over us to lay it down, the thing which causes us any kind of anxiety which is interesting because the next part of this uh, chapter goes right into do not be anxious. It's as if Jesus is giving us the way, the formula, the template for how to not be anxious. And it's in this Lord's Prayer. And it ends, the segue is all about forgiveness. Isn't that interesting? So outside the New Testament, this prayer's earliest citing is in a late first century manual of Christian instruction. It prescribes this prayer's recitation three times a day, nearly identical to what we just read, except it adds this for yours is the power and the glory forever. And then by the ninth century, several hundred years later, they've added the kingdom. And most theologians think that came from David when he was First Chronicles 29, where he is talking and he says, yours, O Lord, are the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. 
So across the centuries, this appendix became even more elaborate and conspicuously Christian. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit now and ever and unto ages of ages. That was as of the fifth century. So this prayer, going back to the simplicity of it, begins with the exaltation of God. It's all about God to start with, isn't it? Our Father who is in heaven, may your name be revered. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. And then it turns into this kind of community understanding. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Do not bring us to the time of trial. And then it gets a little more directive for if you forgive those who trespass against you. This inward transformation of praising God then turns to this outward transformation that blesses the community. This is an example to us of life with God, this inward moving to the outward. So Jesus is looking for participants in this shalom kingdom that he ushered in. We talked about that last week, talked about how there was this expectation of empire and and war and taking taking things by might. The Jews expected the Messiah to come and destroy the Roman rule. But that's not what happened. Jesus said, I'm going to bring peace. I'm fulfilling the kingdom. I'm coming to deliver you. I'm coming to bring you freedom, but in spiritual ways that you've never maybe considered. He ushers this. This this prayer is critical to living in this sense of well-being, this sense of wholeness that Shalom represents. Because as we acknowledge God's truth and his beauty and his goodness around us, as we recognize that we are dependent, utterly dependent on him, that we have a poverty of spirit because we are desperate for him. As we release ourselves and others from the weight of unforgiveness, we are guided away from our selfish ways as well as the selfish ways of others. And we are protected from the evil one. So one of my uh, latest favorites is this First Nations version of scripture translation that's come out. And I just love the imagery, just the very earthy imagery of it. And so I want to end today by reading the Lord's Prayer through this translation. Oh, great Father the one who lives above us all, we honor your name as sacred and holy. Bring your good road to us where the beauty of your ways in the world above is reflected in the earth below. Provide for us day by day the elk, the buffalo and the salmon, the corn, the squash and the wild rice, all the things we need each day. Release us from the things we have done wrong And in the same way, we release others for the things done wrong to us. Guide us away from the things that tempt us to stray from your good road and set us free from the evil one and his worthless ways. Amen.